don't pretend your business is perfect because the buyer is going to figure out like every business has warts and like bad news and all that kind of stuff. Right. And often it's the bad stuff that is the opportunity to the buyer. So it's okay. And besides, they're going to figure it out anyways. If they look at, you know, your website, they do real due diligence, your PL, all that kind of stuff, right? This is James Shramko. James Shramko here. This is episode 926. Today we're chatting with Greg Elfrink, you know, like the magical figure with a nice rink. He's from Empire Flippers. And we're going to be talking about maximizing your content site to sell it via a marketplace. But aside from that, there'll probably be some interesting avenues to this discussion. Welcome, Greg. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully, uh, I'll be able to add some value to the audience. I hope so. Um, The whole intent of this podcast is, of course, to create great education for people who are in the online space. I've done a lot of online coaching. I've with similar background yourself, actually. Lots of SEO, a few content sites. I've built and sold a few online businesses. We've had plenty of brokers on here before and M&A people and our good friends, Matt and Liz Rad, of course, always coming, talking to us about the opportunities that are in the online space. We have a mix of website savvy listeners. A lot of them have a website. We have agencies, we have content sites. There's a couple of software, a few uh, e-commerce audience members. I imagine some of them are building, growing, monetizing. Some of them are interested in selling. Some of them are interested in buying. Most of them are interested in investing. But I think um, something that I'd like to address, and it's probably a you know, personal interest as well. Let's say I've got a really good content site that I've been working on for several years, let's say over seven or eight years, Mm -hmm. that it's got uh, fantastic SEO, that it ranks really well for lots of phrases that bring in people who uh, have buying intent. I'd be interested to know what could I do with that site to make it really valuable? And then uh, if I was going to list it on Empire Flippers, what would that process look like and how do I end up with getting paid for that? That's the bridge I'd like us to build over this episode, <laughs> if, if possible. So I'm going to leave it to you to articulate your way through that. Sure. Uh, I mean, increasing the value of any business is a broad spectrum, right? There's a lot of different things you can do. For someone that already has a content site that is making money, that has traffic, uh, you know, some decent level and like, say, not just starting out. I would say the quickest way to increase the value is take your top five highest performing pages in terms of revenue and just do conversion rate optimization. Usually those tests take about two weeks to figure out which will work better, the blue button or the red button or whatever, right? Those are huge. I mean, we do that at EF, right? And we're an eight-figure company at this point. Like we did it to our our valuation tool and increased our lead flow by 50%. So I highly recommend CRO. The other thing I would recommend that is also quite easy. And by the way, if if your audience is looking at buying websites, it's the same process if you buy a website to do this. Well, you buy one and then this is like first thing you do after you get it to soup it up. Right. Yeah. This is like the quick hits of what you should be doing to increase the value, right? And of course, CRO stands for conversion rate optimization. We'll just uh, label some of these things in case someone's sort of new to this field. Sure. But I love that. So Already straight out of the gates, we take our top five pages and we optimize for conversions for the uh, thing we're trying to do, which might be to make a sale or build an email list. Or mm-hmm. I guess in some cases, it might even be to have people click on our ad, like to get people to leave the site via an ad, <laughs> uh, which was always, I thought, a bit funny, counterintuitive for someone who likes to um, build lists and make sales. But that is actually the goal for some people. Also, while we're here, let's just quickly just recap who is Empire Flippers? I know you're the world's leading marketplace for buying and selling online businesses. It wasn't always an eight-figure business. I remember um, back in <laughs> May 2013, 
I was a guest on the Empire Flippers podcast for episode 46 and uh, we are talking about growing your business back then. Uh, the founders, Justin and Joe, were members of a community that I was in as well. It was called Dynamite Circle. I watched their progress in the Philippines and building up the team. I believe now you've got uh, 90 plus people in the team distributed all around the world. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm also in the Dynamite Circle. So we're still friends with that whole group, that whole crowd. I have a lot of good friends there. But yeah, I started uh, way back in 2016, April 4th. So <laughs> a few more days, it'll be six years for me at EF. And I was like employee number four. So I was living with Justin in an Airbnb in Saigon when he was like, like, all right, I guess I got to teach you uh, content. Um, any suggestions? <laughs> right, we're very like uh, hustle, hustling our way to success. But now we're, I think we're actually officially over 100 people now because we just did a round of hiring of new uh, salespeople. But yeah, the company has grown significantly since 2016. I think, you know, we always talked about us being the best uh, marketplace back then, uh, which is always a subjective thing in marketing. I do think we're the best, but now we are definitely the largest curated marketplace. We have uh, something that's super interesting. So we started tracking this thing about two years ago, which is verify liquidity. How much do our buyers actually have in their network to deploy capital? And we thought, okay, it will probably be a couple hundred million, something like that. It is now as of a week and a half ago, past $6 billion in <laughs> verify liquidity from our buyer network. So it's crazy to see. Uh, we've grown dramatically from selling just, you know, the digital nomad businesses of the world to now we often are working with private equity, family offices, and a whole slew of M&A stuff that I never thought I'd ever learn as an ex-oil field roughneck, you know? Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I was speaking to Matt and Liz Rad. Matt, obviously background in M&A. He's seeing a lot of this sort of investment activity. We've had a few episodes on this exact topic covering the investment side of it. It's fascinating to see this space. Uh, it makes me excited, especially for my content site that you're going to help me improve and sell <laughs> on the network. So I've already gone and got my top five pages and I've maximized the conversion rates for that. Where do I go next? Uh, yeah. So the next thing that I think is usually one of the quicker wins is to get a tool like ClearScope or Surfer SEO and do the same thing, optimize those five pages for low-hanging fruit, Look at any of your keywords that are like on page two or positions four to eight. Optimize them because usually you likely have enough link juice to go after a lot of those keywords and increase your revenue, right? And increase your traffic as well. So those would be two of the first things I do. If you are using Amazon affiliate, I'd highly recommend that you try different networks unless you're about to sell. If you're like three months out from selling or six months out even, I wouldn't recommend doing this. Is that because you want a history of sales that's um, consistent? Yeah. Right. As you get closer to selling a business, you want to lean a little bit out of the growth and more into the maintenance mode. So mm -hmm. the buyer understands what is like the level playing field, right? This is why sometimes we won't accept a business, even though it's quite profitable and it's big because it has a huge chunk of its PL currently dedicated to say experimental advertising, like in the e-commerce space, especially. This is something we see. <laughs> so I imagine some people even go the next step, you know, not just growing anymore and not just maintaining, but they're actually going to decline where they just give up or they're out of it. They're mentally checked out. They're frustrated by things. They found their team members mucking around or they um, were promoting something that fell off the face of the earth. They just want to get out of it and they're having to sort of try and sell it while it's dropping like a rock. What advice would you have for those people? Yes. Uh, so this is something we do see, right? Because uh, you look at like the reasons why someone might sell a business, it's, it's really like two categories. It's personal and business. And 
those are often good reasons to sell. Hopefully it's a mixture of personal and business that gets you closer to your goals. But a lot of the times it is what you said, right? Like, you know, I have this content business. I work an hour a month on it, but it's on my mind like 18 hours a day, right? I just want to get rid of it, right? So that's very common. My advice is ideally sell it before that burnout gets to the point where your business starts declining because you obviously are going to get way less value for it uh, if it's declining. If you want to sell it and it is declining, my uh, advice, like if you just want to get rid of it as quickly as possible and still recoup some money, my best advice is you need to be very flexible and you need to be realistic with your expectations, right? Mm -hmm. You can't come in there thinking, I have this insanely valuable business that is so not valuable, you chose not to even work on it, right? <laughs> like, exactly. It's not. It's hardly appealing, is it? And right. I suppose there's a potential element, like someone who's looking to buy might be coming in with that sort of renovator's mindset. They might be buying some of the opportunity of what they think they can do with it. So- is there a, a point where you'd say, well, you know, we could optimize it, but we're just not going to like, so that the person that's buying it could see that they could do all these things and just, and fantasize about an amazing outcome? Yeah. Good question. So this actually works for both declining and uh, uh, growing businesses, actually. Uh, obviously for declining businesses, you're not going to get a boost to your multiple based on that. Cause it's based on the reality, right? Like valuations, while there is growth as part of the valuation, a large chunk of evaluation is asking how risky is the business. Mm -hmm. And the less risky, usually the more premium valuation you're going to get, which obviously growth plays a part in that. But uh, in terms of what you just said, that's called selling on potential, right? And we always tell our sellers, do not sell on potential. But if you have things like that, that like, hey, I'm, I did a really bad job on my on-page SEO, that naturally builds that potential in the buyer's head where they just start selling themselves on it, where you don't have to sell it. And that leads me to uh, one of the things I always tell sellers to do, don't pretend your business is perfect because the buyer is going to figure out, like every business has warts and like bad news and all that kind of stuff, right? And often it's the bad stuff that is the opportunity to the buyer. So it's okay. And besides, they're going to figure it out anyways if they look at you know your website, they do real due diligence, your PL, all that kind of stuff, right? Do you find sometimes people don't do their due diligence? Like, does everyone know to do this now? Or are there still people who just, you know, get out there and just make a wild purchase? <laughs> there are people who uh, <laughs> roll the dice for sure. So we always try to do, you know, try to, so we have a, a thing for our buyers who are brand new to the marketplace called a criteria discovery call. And that's where we try to figure out like, okay, let's look at your budget. What's your working capital, acquisition capital? What do you want to do? What's your goal with doing this? Like, what's your big end game? What are your current skill sets? Have you ever done anything with SEO or e-commerce or whatever, right? So we try to help buyers from there. Now, with that said, sometimes buyers just come charging in. <laughs> we had this guy, I think it was about two years ago, he bought a uh, $2 million uh, Amazon FBA business from us. And the guy was in our CRM for all of like a week before he was unlocking this business. And I still remember listening to the sales call and our sales guy's like, well, do you have any experience with Amazon FBA? He's like, no. Like, okay, you ever ran an online business? Like, no. Okay. Uh, maybe we should start off something, something smaller, you know, like say 30, 50K or something like that. Get your feet wet. He's like, no, I want to go big. Like, well, okay. Do you have $2.1 million to spend? He's like, yes. Like, all right. <laughs> it reminds me of some of my clients at um, Mercedes-Benz. They would buy the cars, the expensive ones. Some of them were $460,000 Australian dollars. But it didn't mean that they were a great driver. <laughs> so sometimes the car was capable of things that the, the driver was. And, and occasionally they'd put it into a wall or trash it. And I imagine that happens with websites. 
So just picking up a couple of points that I've learned so far that there's three different modes there. There's either the growth mode, the maintenance mode, or the decline mode. And we want to try and get it into maintenance mode before we sell it so that we can show a stable history and uh, reduce the risk. Because you also said that risk is a, a factor and that you're buying multiples. So, I, I mean, it begs the question, what things are risky and what's less risky? Like, how do we define a website as to risky? Let's say my content site. What sort of things would I need to know about it to determine if it's risky or not for a buyer? Sure. So, and this is something you see a lot on the small side, small end. And this is often why I tell people to try to avoid websites underneath 100K unless you're using like a broker you really trust, right? Mm-hmm. Like a, a curated marketplace like us or someone else you really trust. Because uh, that's usually where most of the risky assets and the scammy assets usually live in that area. Are they like penny stocks? Yeah. The cheap junky <laughs> stuff. So right. that's good. Like I'll be more than, I'll be happy to get more than 100,000 for my website. So we're still in the game. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, so uh, one thing I would look at is diversity of traffic in terms of like, not just by traffic channel, because most businesses tend to be mono channel. Like right. you will get a multiple bump if you have multiple different traffic sources. But what I'm talking about is does like over 50% of your traffic come to one page. Gotcha. That's risky on that content site, right? So I'm, I'm strong with SEO, I'm, but basically get all the traffic from organic, uh, but it's distributed across many different pages and that's right. less risky. Way less risky because if you know a competitor comes in on that specific keyword and crushes you, well, you don't have a website. Mm. This is why uh, sub 100K businesses are a higher risk because usually they only have one page. This single point sensitive. Yeah, exactly. Other things that makes it more risky is like, how were you doing your backlinks? Is it a spammy build, oh. right? Like PBN links? No one does that anymore, do they? Surely. Oh, people still do. They don't go on our marketplace. But Five gigs with site, forum site runs. So <laughs> come on, guys. We know better than that now. <laughs> oh, I have a lot of technical SEO friends that are still very much in the black hat days. And I'm a very white hat SEO and just like at scale is like, man, white hat is so much easier. <laughs> just build a brand. I agree. <laughs> I, I want to sleep at night. You know, I, I built, ran and sold an SEO business and uh, it was such a great experience, but we did it all ethically. The team is still around now in my friend's business as a partner of mine, which is great. And they, they survive. I'd say almost all of my competitors got smacked when the blog networks got taken out. It was crazy. And we were able to shift our techniques to be able to survive without our own websites or anyone else's, you know, in any kind of network. So I love it. That reminds me of, uh, so I was on a podcast a few weeks ago with this guy who was one of the, uh, I think like one of the original workers at Yahoo back in the day. Now he does all this like Silicon Valley uh, SEO consulting for startups. But him and I were talking, we just had this like total tangent going to SEO instead of talking about buying and selling businesses. But uh, he asked me, uh, you know, what's like all the crazy stuff in SEO. And like, for me, like, I know it, like I know about pillowing, anchor text ratio, all that kind of stuff. But like, when you're building a real brand, like 90% of SEO is just like good quality content and backlinks. And you don't even need good quality content to rank. It's just good if you actually want to make money, right? <laughs> you actually convert. Yeah, if you want people to get there and do something with yeah, it. Yeah, like all the other stuff, the other 10% is what a lot of the affiliate SEOs focus on because they're looking for that like slight edge, right? It becomes a lot simpler when you're building out a real brand. I love it. Okay, so we've covered a little bit of risk, different cha- traffic channels maybe, but it's okay if it's mono-channel, but as long as you've diversified within that, I get that, the risk spread. The other big indicator you said was multiples. We're talking about multiples of profit, I suppose. We're talking about the um, profit mm-hmm. uh, before we pay tax or draw, you know, owners' stuff out of it, allowing for a proper wage, those sort of things. Yeah, we price pretty much everything with EBITDA and SDE. 
which are very, very similar. EBITDA you tend to do when it's a little bit of bigger valuation, but they're effectively so similar, it's hard to tell the difference for most people. Do you want to spell out those acronyms for our um, entry-level people? Uh, sure. So SDE is seller discretionary earnings. So yep. that's, uh, you know, if I have a website making $10,000 a month, I bring home $9,000 as profit that I can pay myself or reinvest as SDE. Basically, every business owner milking their business right. to the maximum. Like, <laughs> it's extraordinarily common and it has to be adjusted for or whatever. So like pretty much every business owner does it. But if you want to sell the business, then of course, it's not great if you're paying for your groceries or for your sister's mortgage and all these sort of things. You've got to, <laughs> you've got to um, account for those things. If you are doing it, you've got to account for them back in. Yeah. And what kind of multiples are we talking about? Let's say I've got my content site and I've got a publisher model so I can just building email list and sending out some emails and making some affiliate promotions. And I will ask you about switching networks in a minute. So I'm making income, good profit from my SEO across multiple pages. What sort of multiple might I expect? Sure. So if you have a high quality content site that is built well, it's showing uh, good signs of growth, and it's not incredibly risky like we were just talking about, mm -hmm. you're looking at a multiples between like 35 and maybe even 40x SDE. Now that's monthly, not annual, <laughs> uh, just to be clear. I was going to clarify that. Like everyone else in the industry uses annual except for us. <laughs> yeah, like I was going to say, like, sorry, Greg, I've got to go. <laughs> i got to sell this right now. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that, that's okay. So basically it's like three years worth of profit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can get a little bit higher. Content multiples are kind of hitting that ceiling right around there though. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you have a high quality thing that is different, uh, like you have an email list, you have multiple traffic channels, all that kind of stuff, you can get higher than that, especially if it's a bigger business. Bit of social like and absolutely zero input whatsoever. And you know the content is 100% original. No one else has anything like it. And it's been a really long, long history of stable income. Now, let's talk about networks for a minute, monetization, because that's sure. you know really important. I've, I've been, I've experienced this. So I used to run at Google for a while there, and then I switched to a different network called Ozoic, and that made my site make more money. But I think it deteriorated the user experience a little bit, the way that they, uh, at the time, it slowed down the site and it showed too many ads mm -hmm. of the wrong type. I didn't like that. So I switched it back. Uh, so I think that, that if I was going to sell it, I'd probably switch to something that makes more money at some point. But for now, I was going for the really grow the, the brand equity and make sure that people want to come back and keep enjoying it. What kind of networks would I consider or ways that I could monetize my site? Yeah, I mean, the first off, the thing you just said, you kind of did it off the cuff, but extremely important. Like to me, the most valuable thing any business owner, whether you're on content uh, site or the director of marketing at Empire Flippers is, is your audience and how to build an audience to keep coming back over and over and over again, right? Because if we're, if we're walking down the street and I hand you a brochure, like you are likely, like if you buy something from that brochure, great, but either way you're throwing it away. Like unless you have a, like a weird brochure collecting <laughs> like passion, right? But if I hand you a magazine, whether you buy something or not, there's a chance that magazine catches your attention you like what's in there and you subscribe or get the newsletter over and over again, right? So that's super, super important. In terms of uh, monetization, so you mentioned Ezoic. I have a lot of friends that have used Ezoic and they, they've reported the speed issues. I think they've gotten better on the ad serving issues. Apparently very recently they've improved that. Yeah. It, it was uh, too slow for, you know, when I had it and it was frustrating users and it was affecting the things like page views and stuff. It was right dropping away so there, there's two other networks that are really common that we see people use and to great effect and that would be uh, mediavine and ad thrive 
I think you need a higher traffic thresholds for both of them with ad thrive, I think being the highest, mm-hmm. but we've seen a lot of success with uh, people doing those and they're less intrusive and less, uh, they don't slow down your site of, as far as feedback from my friends, at least goes. There is another one called monetize more that is probably the best I would wager, but you need a gargantuan amount of traffic to uh, be able to apply for that one. Yeah. I'd say we're probably not there yet, but somewhere in the other ones, maybe. What about things like building an email list or adding your own product? Are these good moves? Absolutely. They're great moves. So this is one of the things I often tell my SEO friends and like affiliate SEO friends, like I find a lot of them get pretty myopic because they just rank and bank and move on to the next site or the next article. But you literally have one of the most valuable traffic sources in the world. High intent organic search traffic is like one of the best, highest converting traffic sources you can possibly ever get, right? Uh, and so I think a lot of times my SEO friends take their marketing hat off and just like, ah, oh, let me go do more stuff for the algorithm. <laughs> you know, well, but, like, uh, SEO people are very um, usually very good at it because they are good at technical stuff and they can be creative, but they do tend to get technical myopia. They just um, yes. they just keep their head under the bonnet and they, they just miss the whole picture. And it's like often the marketers come along and they don't know anything about the SEO, but they hire people to do the SEO and they seem to be the ones making a lot of the money <laughs> right? because yeah, um, exactly. they can move all the bits. So it's like being too good at a technical thing can be a handicap. I, I really learned that lesson in the car dealership because we used to have to install our own number plates and plate frames and cut mats to go in the car, rubber mats, which, I mean, I was outraged that the business was so stupid that they would make a, a salesperson who's supposed to be selling the products and you're in marketing, so you'd understand this. Go and do this technical stuff that, like literally the more cars I sold, the more mats I had to cut and the more number plates that I had to screw on. So I basically discovered that it was just good not to know how to use a screwdriver or a Stanley knife. And I was able to commandeer a lovely gentleman called Barry to take over those tasks for me because he felt sorry for my technical inability. But the reality is it just didn't make sense in my mind. It was switching out a low paid activity for a high paid activity so I encourage you to get someone else, some third party or an external person to, to query you on this or question you on how you can um, get outside of your own world and see that. That's what I want to do with this podcast. We're literally creating a checklist here. But I think email is still as solid in 2022 mm. as it was 10 years ago. And I, they keep talking about it dying and going away, but it's not going anywhere as far as I can tell. I think it's gotten even more important over the last, say, a year and a half or so as we're heading into more of a cookie-less future that's coming down the pipe, you know? Mm -hmm. Google Analytics, they're going to be shuttering uh, next year, I believe it is, for Google Analytics 4. That's going to cause a huge uproar. Yeah, they're switching the the way they track and they're going to lose all the historical data. That would be very interesting for people who want to sell. They might want to be screen capturing some of their history because otherwise you won't be able to verify it. Yeah, it's going to be scary times once that rolls out. But like, yeah, email, uh, to answer your question, like I think email is the most important thing you can do for your evaluation if you use it right. So most right. people uh, that I talk to, uh, or not most nowadays, but a lot of my friends in the SEO space at least, they'll build out an email list and you know, increase their valuation. And then I'll ask them like, well, uh, you know, how much revenue has this created? And they go, nothing. I've never emailed them. Like in, in, in this case, like, you know, they don't want to be annoying to the list or whatever. Like, yeah. Well, that's like they're annoying the <laughs> list if they collect the email and never send them an email. That's yeah, because yeah, the people for sure. joined for that. I mean, one easy way to, to do it, one way we've done it is we capture the email and then we send them updates with new content. So we, we basically ask them to be notified when we put new content. And then when we put new content, we email them and say, guess what? There's new content. 
Exactly. And of course that strengthens uh, the site. Uh, I played with paid traffic and survey funnels and things and we were able to really accelerate the email list, but then it's a matter of what to sell. So that's where I, I think product creation seems like a natural pathway if you've got the ability to do it or if you can find someone at least do an affiliation that might be more direct than just putting advertising panels on your website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think creating products is the next natural step. So I've seen content sites uh, go and become e-commerce juggernauts or even software juggernauts, right? Depending on the niche. Some people create software services around their niche. But one of the cool thing is I imagine a lot of people listening to this probably are in the Amazon Associates program. Now, I recommend moving away from Amazon Associates to higher paying programs. But one of the really cool things is if you are looking at building your own product, Amazon kind of tells you what's selling on your website, right? Like if you're a gardening website and you see a certain kind of spade is just like, is your number one seller for whatever reason. Well, now you know your first product you should probably be making, right? So like you get paid for the R&D. Well, apparently Amazon do this themselves. They get all these FBA sites, see what people are selling, then they go and do their house brand. Uh, You know what's ironic about that? So we sell a lot of FBA businesses, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. I'd say... uh, it used to be content size as our main model. Nowadays is FBA and we sell tons of them, more than pretty much anyone. But Amazon just recently came out. I'll have to find the article again. They came out and basically said like their Amazon basics products, they couldn't compete against their own sellers because the sellers are too good. So they, they basically are shuttering it all. <laughs> That's very interesting. It reminds me of uh, the factory stores of pretty much most brands often underperform the independents because the independents have got a little bit more skin in the game, a little more chops around running the business. And the factory often has some laziness or inside, you know, hidden advantage that they can lean on or they have to, they're sort of tasked with churning through new people or doing the R&D and they can miss out. So I'm not surprised, but isn't that interesting? I, I, yeah, and I don't think you can get paid much less than the associates program in terms of percentage and stuff. And they do sometimes <laughs> make, <laughs> make changes. I'm pretty sure I got banned from that and sometime around 2009 for, for reasons unknown. <laughs> I wasn't doing anything crazy. So I haven't, haven't been drawing on the uh, Amazon thing, even though we publish a, a lot of authors on this uh, site. And so that, that would have been okay. But, you know, I guess I'm, I'll miss out on that 20 bucks commission. Uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, it might have been a good thing for your SEO career. A lot of SEOs just get stuck in that Amazon affiliate program forever when they could have been making way more money just thinking a little bit outside of the box. Well, there's, yeah, there's always opportunities in setbacks and and I found mine. So, all right, I've, I've got my content optimized. I'm getting a few different channels activated. I've got the email list being built. I'm selling some things. I started making my own products. What else do I do? Anything tricky? Like, do I go and roll up or buy up some other businesses or do I try and sell it myself or do I just lob along to the broker? And if I do, what are they going to want from me to be able to sell the site? Because I imagine there's work to be done. You know, often you hear about the sale book or whatever. Like, what do I have to bring to the broker and say, here's my site. This is what people can buy from me. Because I imagine there's little awkward things like payment carts if you have products or can you export the database of the customers? Do you even have permission to transfer them to someone else? Was it in your terms? What about social media accounts? What if I have a podcast or a YouTube channel, Twitter, all of these things? Obviously, they get the domain. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do we organize the hosting? I've got basically a million questions on that. Sure. So most of what you just said is, yes, we would be transferring all that. So 
when someone goes and buys a, a business from us, at least, it's typically an APA, an asset purchase agreement. So mm-hmm. any asset of the business will go over to the new owner, which includes things like your social media, podcasts, YouTube, all that kind of stuff. Now, if you have a YouTube channel and a podcast, I highly recommend that it is not you doing the podcast or the YouTube uh, if your plan is to sell the business, because that puts you in a weird position where the buyer has to kind of be you and most of them are not going to be you, right? Yeah, so it's too personality driven. Nick. Yeah, it's like, uh, I always use the example of like, if you're a, you know, a 24-year-old bodybuilder really ripped selling an info course on how to get abs and you're the main character of that whole story, like, you know, the 55-year-old pop belly investor or someone like me, <laughs> it's not going to be you, right? Like mm. they can't run that business nearly as effective as you. So I would keep that kind of stuff in mind. But in those cases, yes, we would transfer uh, YouTube. In fact, we've even sold just YouTube channels. They kind of get a little bit lower multiples, but uh, to great success, right? So all that stuff would be transferred. In terms of customer data, that would be transferred as well. Now, in the the case of a content site, usually that's pretty thin. Mm -hmm. Usually the closest you get to that is uh, the email list, which would be transferred over to the new owner, right? domain as well. Everything would be transferred over hosting. And we organize all of that in what is essentially a data room inside of our platform. That is a series of checklists that our Mm -hmm. migration team works with uh, the buyer and sellers on, which that is probably one of our more unique advantages as Mm -hmm. an M&A broker is that we have an actual migrations team. Most brokers don't do that because they don't want the uh, the liability. <laughs> well, I know that's a really messy part when the sale happens. Like I've uh, owned two thousand domains and I've sold a lot of them, probably over a thousand. And you know, I'm familiar with the process of escrow. And also, um, you know, when I sell a domain on a domain platform, they want the EPP, and you know, so they collect the money from the buyer, they get the EPP from me, they end up putting the money in my account, all this sort of stuff. But I can imagine it just gets way more technical when you're dealing with uh, entire, you know, hosting and, and all this. I'm just thinking there's, for any website these days, probably quite a lot of bits and pieces going along with it in terms of scripts and other software and tools and things and you have to draw a line. And maybe, do you ever transfer team members along with the site, like someone who's there running mm-hmm. the site or doing certain tasks? So it always depends on the buyer and the sellers. Like first off, the seller has to let us know that they're willing to let their team go. Mm-hmm. Some sellers are not. They like it's not super uncommon for a seller to have a like a core team mm-hmm. that's working on several different brands at any given time. And so they're not willing to give up that team. Now, sometimes they'll hire like replacements or so for the brand that will go with yep. the new owner, but that's a little bit rare. Now, sellers sometimes are okay with the buyer taking that team, and often the buyers will take that team because typically for a buyer, they want everything as it was for the seller, right? And they might change it later, but when they first start off, they want it to be at that uh, equal playing field of growth. Like They don't want to change anything just yet. Yeah, that's what happened with my agency. uh, My web development team, I think 10 people went with that. And with my SEO business, there was 30-something people Mm. went with the business. But for my content site, I imagine there, there wouldn't be team involved. It, it requires so little. And if they did need something, we could even perhaps offer them a, a service where they could just pay us to do some of the tasks that we're doing in, in, you know, and to build that into whatever the, the numbers might look like. Yeah, so that, that's actually a deal structure that's probably more common with content sites than uh, any other business model that we call in perpetuity, mm-hmm. which is basically where the buyer pays the seller even after uh, the purchase price is all paid out for different kinds of services, whether it's like, uh, you know, guest posting services, content creation, all that kind of stuff. 
Okay, what happens with things like payment systems? Uh, you know, it could be awkward with PayPal, for example, because yeah. you might have a whole lot of stuff coming to one account. Obviously, if you're setting something up to sell it in the very beginning, this would be a great episode because you'd know to build it in a different name other than yourself and to not be the personality, which is like that was rule number one for my content site. It must not involve me whatsoever. The second part is, you know, collecting money. It's pretty hard to transfer that. Is there a scenario where you would collect money and then transfer it on like in an accounting basis, which is what I did when I sold my service? Or do you have people migrate to a new billing, which I imagine you're going to slip some of them. You'll lose a few of them on trying to do that. Mm -hmm. How do you handle this? So with PayPal, we handle it by saying you need to switch your merchant processor before you can sell with us. (laughs) Gotcha. So before they sell it, they go and migrate people onto Stripe or something else. Right. And it has to be six months before or after that transfer is done because we yep. need to, because like you said, you're going to lose some people. Some yeah. people won't like the experience, whatever. So we need to see what that new reality is before we would sell it. But this is a big problem, actually, mm-hmm. even with uh, SaaS founders. Yeah. So we, we've looked at selling a few SaaS businesses and a lot of them, they just do use PayPal and they don't realize like you can't transfer that. Yeah. Like unless you're willing to give your entire PayPal account over which I, you could, but... Which is what some people might have to do, but, you know, yeah. like often the PayPal account might be in a business name or whatever. It's, I don't think I could transfer my PayPal account. they got too much affiliate commission coming in from hundreds of different places, you know, I, I should have <laughs> exactly. structured it better. Yeah. So on my new site that I built two years ago, I set up a whole new cart, a new PayPal account in the Stripe so that it's coming in separately and easy to, to account for. And for the content site, Would the new owner just switch out my AdSense ads for their AdSense ads if I just had AdSense? Is that the easy way to do it? Because I wouldn't be able to swap my account. Right. Yeah. So that's the way it is done typically. So AdSense uh, would be the new owner's account. The new owner needs to make sure that they have an approved account before they buy buy the business unless they talk, let seller and buyer agrees that that's okay. And same thing with affiliate links. So they would just replace all their affiliate links, uh, all of your affiliate links with theirs, which is something our migration team does on behalf of uh, uh, the buyer and seller. Of course, the, any buyer should double check our work because it's, you know, if you have uh, hundreds of pages of content mm-hmm. site, there is a chance some of them are going to be missed, right? So it's always good to double check what we do if you do use the app. But yeah, that, that's the way it works. Uh, we just change out the affiliate links. It's actually a quite simple process. It's just very tedious depending on the size of the business. That's the nice thing about display ads. You just like change the code and it's done. <laughs> Just think about it. We've, we have thousands of pages. I imagine we could get one of those um, plugins that hyperlinks certain words and sends them off for affiliate, you know, like that, like the Amazon one does, but a private one. That yeah. but we, so we actually use it too. I forget the name of it. There is a tool that we use that does most of the heavy lifting, but it's not 100% accurate. So you still want to be careful with it. Cool. I mean, I've tried to go for the more difficult challenges and the easy areas to, to have wins. You've seen so many deals come through. You know the market well. What haven't I asked you that I probably should have? Hmm. Um, what have you asked me that you probably should add? I think we've covered quite a bit, quite a bit of good stuff. Uh, I think understanding uh, valuation as a value of risk is something a lot of people don't think about. I think entrepreneurs in general were a bit plagued by the curse of uh, always wanting to grow. And we often don't realize growth itself can be a very double-edged sword. Massive problem. Huge, complicated <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I would say if we're going to leave this off, I would say that one of the most important things when it comes to selling or buying a business is do not time the market. I get asked this question all the time. Like, when's the best time to sell? When's the best time to buy? It doesn't matter. The best time to do either is when you can get significantly closer to your personal or business goals. And don't sacrifice your personal and business goals for a little bit of extra growth. I'll tell a, a quick story here. I had a friend 
he had a, a content site. I think it was valued at around like four fifty, five hundred thousand dollars, something like that. And he knew if he changed the links from PBN to uh, White Hat links, this is way back in the day when PBNs were still really popular, that he could get on average a ten percent increase to his valuation. So he chose to do that. Uh, he spent about six months doing that. And at the, I think it was like month four or month five, there was a Google algorithm update happened, crushed his business and never recovered. So he ended up selling that same business with us for 220K when he could have gone closer to 500K or even a little bit over 500K, right? So I always challenge entrepreneurs to think in the bigger picture of growth. Like, does that extra 20K or 30K make up for the fact you just lost over 200K? Usually the answer is no. So if you can sell your business to get closer to your personal business goals, I would do it because you don't know what the opportunity cost is by waiting. I love that. It's like um, make sure you don't win the battle and lose the war. Or, right. <laughs> um, it's like Dan Sullivan's 80% principle. 80% is probably good enough because there's this diminishing return in the last part. And I said to a friend of mine the other day, he's, I've got this friend, he's pretty frugal and uh, cunning with his finances and stuff. And he's always trying to squeeze that little bit of extra here or there, and, and especially even out of his team and stuff, which I've over time trained him that that's like they're the last people you want to squeeze. Right. And I said to him, you know what, I've actually had a pretty good life by paying too much for things and selling things for too little. It's okay just to, <laughs> to cut a path through without, you know, so much um, pressure and hassle comes from that trying to squeeze the last drop when you could be onto the whole next piece of fruit. <laughs> it's a it's whole line, uh, 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 penny wise and pound foolish, right? Picking up pennies and losing dollars. Like, Love it. It makes sense, you know, like uh, I pay, you pay your people well, pay your service providers well, and if you do a good job with your strategy, you're going to get paid extremely well. <laughs> it all works out in the end. Yeah, just like just, you know, <laughs> do good stuff, have great product, and don't over-optimize is really the big lesson I've got. And, you know, the, the episode just prior to this one, episode 925, I was speaking to a, a client of mine I've had for over 10 years, and he has what I would call an unoptimized business, but he's, it's just so drama-free. He's having the best life ever and, and a substantial income. It's a small team, low friction, no hassles. I love that. Greg, really been a refreshing chat. I think this is very helpful if you're interested in maximizing your selling price. I'm you know, super interested in this topic because I've got a content site that I will sell at some point. And I'm just going to keep bringing in experts like Greg to help do that. And of course, that uh, Empire Flippers Marketplace looks like a really good place to be doing that. And you've got all the systems and processes in place. We'll put a link off to Empire Flippers. And uh, Greg, thanks so much for coming and sharing. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me. And uh, if anyone wants to reach out to me, my email is just greg at empireflippers.com. I'm usually pretty easy to get a hold of. Happy to help whether you use this or not including you, James. Yeah, I'll let, <laughs> uh, let Greg know that you heard him on the podcast and I'm sure he'll look after you great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. This is James Schramko. 